Remember the 90s, when MTV still played music videos, when people still bought physical copies of albums, and when legendary musicians like Kurt Cobain and Dimebag Daryl still walked the earth? Well, now you can once again relive that decade every week on KBGA because your favorite 90s radio show, Sounds Like Teen Spirit, is back and better than ever. It's still the best show on KBGA to hear artists like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Sublime, Megadeth, Primus, and more. Again, that's Sounds Like Teen Spirit. Now on Sundays from 8 to 10 p.m., only on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. Aquabats kicking off this program with The Shark Fighter off their 2011 album High Five Soup. Welcome to the award-winning Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. I'm your pensive host, Ian. 
This episode contains music from the likes of White Zombie, Counting Crows, Save Ferris, Queens of the Stone Age, The Charlatans, House of Pain, PJ Harvey, Uncanny Alliance, Buck Cherry, and Del the Funky Homo Sapien. Plus, I'm going to be reviewing and playing a song apiece from the new Built to Spill album, When the Wind Forgets Your Name, released on September 9th, the new Clutch album, Sunrise on Slaughter Beach, released on September 16th, the new Weezer EP, Seasons, Autumn, released on the 22nd, the new Slipknot album, The End So Far, released on the 30th, and the new Bush album, The Art of Survival, released on October 7th. I'll start with Built to Spill. Built to Spill's Doug March is essentially the Trent Reznor of indie rock. Just like Reznor has historically done with Nine Inch Nails, March generally treats Built to Spill as a personal alias for his own musical output, as opposed to the name of the band he leads. As its founder, frontman, guitarist, songwriter, and sometimes even producer, there's no question that March is responsible for virtually every facet of Built to Spill that you hear on the record. He made his intent for the band clear right from the get-go in an early 90s interview with Spin, where he claimed he wanted to swap out his rhythm section for each successive Built to Spill album, leaving himself as the band's only constant. Although he apparently disregarded that game plan for a good chunk of his career, maintaining a steadfast lineup from the late 90s all the way through the aughts, he's been falling back on his original concept in recent years. Over the past decade, March put out a few new Built to Spill albums while working with an ever-revolving array of musicians. In 2015, the band released Untethered Moon, their first album in roughly five and a half years, as well as the first to feature no other returning members than March. The new trio, rounded out by bassist Jason Albertini and drummer Stephen Gear, would only last through 2017, though during that time they also managed to record a Daniel Johnston covers album, which was released in 2020. In 2018, March started working with the Brazilian rhythm section, recruiting Le Almeida and Joa Casais from the jazz rock band Orua. This lineup only held fast for the duration of that year, after which current members Melanie Radford and Teresa Esquera were introduced, but it was ultimately the lineup that recorded the latest Built to Spill album, When the Wind Forgets Your Name, which somehow didn't see released until just last month. And this album, much like the chaotic and jumbled past decade of Built to Spill's timeline in general, makes one thing abundantly clear. That Doug March is, and will always undisputably and unreservedly be, built to spill, no matter how long he takes between albums or whom he records with, even when he's poaching his backing band from a foreign country. Despite arriving more than seven years after the last proper built to spill album, When the Wind Forgets Your Name hasn't lost a step with March's overall aesthetic for the band. The vocals, guitar work, and songwriting sensibilities all feel pleasantly familiar and wrap themselves around a decent helping of both toe-tappingly exuberant pop rock tunes and sprawling, spacey, endearingly discordant indie jams, aka the two main flavors of Built to Spill. In fact, the album more or less waffles between the two on a song-to-song -song basis, and there's even a pair of songs late in the album titled Never Alright and Alright that cheekily illustrate the whole dynamic. The former, despite its title and lyrical content, is actually the more upbeat sounding of the two, taking on a cheery tone and energetic tempo more commonly reserved for the likes of Dinosaur Jr. and Superchunk. 
Other highlights include quick and punchy lead single slash opener, Gonna Lose, closing track Comes a Day, whose eight and a half minutes of psychedelic folk and the album on a fittingly epic note, just as other lengthy built-to-spill songs have done for past albums, Understood, which is undoubtedly a contender for catchiest built-to-spill song ever, and the album's centerpiece and lone outlier Rocksteady, which has a distinct reggae vibe, but despite its curveball sound, it still incorporates all the built-to-spill hallmarks in recognizable fashion. Ultimately, When the Wind Forgets Your Name isn't much more than a quintessential built-to-spill album with a couple of nifty surprises, but after a 7-plus year wait, that's all most of us really needed for it to be. Doug March, a.k.a. Built to Spill, is back, folks, and he's sounding like he never went away. Alright, next I'm going to play that aforementioned Superchunk-esque song, Never Alright. Enjoy!
time to get tuned up. Hold on to your left nuts, it's time for an overhaul! 89.9 FM. I got 
portion of KBGA is brought to you by Imagination Brewing Company. By supporting over 1,700 community events in its educational center, Imagination brews handcrafted beer to make a positive impact on Missoula and beyond. For more information about what's on tap, weekly live music offerings, or to reserve the center, call 406-926-1251 or visit imaginationbrewing.com.
1982 with Dumpweed off their 1999 album Enema of the State. Blink-182 have reunited with original vocalist-slash-guitarist Tom DeLonge. DeLonge left the band in early 2015 over a dispute between himself and the other two members, which, interestingly enough, was also the reasoning behind the band's initial 2005 breakup. However, this time, remaining members Mark Hoppus and Travis Barker opted instead to continue Blink with Matt Skiba from Alkaline Trio in place of DeLonge. This iteration of the band released two albums together, 2016's California and 2019's Nine. Ultimately, DeLong's return to Blink had been foretold for quite a while. DeLong freely admitted that his exit from the band was hasty and not meant to be taken as a serious gesture, and he maintained for years that he was still close with Hoppus and Barker and would be welcomed back into Blink in no time. Furthermore, Hoppus was by all accounts more receptive than ever to reuniting with DeLong after his triumph over cancer last year, and Skiba recently confessed that he had no idea whether he was still in the band. However, Blink-182 didn't officially make the inevitably internet-breaking announcement until just last week, and a whole host of other goodies came right along with it. For starters, the band also announced an extensive world tour that will run throughout 2023 and even part of 2024. The tour will kick off next spring with a Latin American leg, and the first reunion show with DeLong is scheduled for Tijuana, Mexico on March 11th. From there, Blink will loop their way through South America over the duration of March before ending up back in Mexico for additional shows in Mexico City and Monterey. Next up is a U.S. and Canadian leg, which will run from May through mid-July, and alas, it looks like the closest it'll be coming to our neck of the woods is Seattle. This leg will be followed by a European leg in September and October, and finally, an Australia and New Zealand leg in February 2024. To top it all off, Blink also confirmed that a new album with DeLong was on the way, and on Friday they issued its lead single, Edging. Naturally, they chose to lead off their first post-reunion album with a song sung predominantly by DeLong, though Hoppus contributes a surprising amount of vocals as well. Musically speaking, Edging is a bouncy throwback to the band's turn-of-the-century albums Enema of the State and Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. In other words, the return of Tom DeLonge has also ushered in a return to form for Blink-182. It really does feel like Blink just became whole again, and judging by the single's music video racking up over 2 million views within the day of its premiere, a lot of people are really stoked on that prospect. The new Blink album still doesn't have a title or release date, but I'm certain the band will try to have it out before the start of their world tour next year. I'll let you know when I know more. Anyway, before Blink, I played Have You Seen Me Lately by Counting Crows off their 1996 album Recovering the Satellites, Just Another Victim by Helmet and House of Pain off the 1993 soundtrack to the film Judgment Night, and Down by the Water by P.J. Harvey off her 1995 album To Bring You My Love. Once again, you're listening to Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. To like this show on Facebook, go to facebook.com SLTS2. And to hear this and other episodes of the program after the broadcast, go to kbga.org teen spirit. Alright, next I'm going to review and play a song from the new Clutch album, Sunrise on Slaughter Beach. I've heard the phrase, hardest working band, applied to all sorts of different acts, but few as routinely as Clutch. 
Clutch may not have the voluminous musical output of, say, Guided by Voices, but they've maintained a sturdy career momentum for essentially all of their 30-ish years thus far. The band have now released 13 studio albums to date, generally never taking more than two to three years between albums, and they're on the road constantly, averaging maybe 70 to 100 shows per year and passing through our own Missoula, Montana on several occasions, including just last spring. It's actually kind of impressive that their new album, Sunrise on Slaughter Beach, which arrived just barely over four years out from the last one, marks the band's longest album gap to date. Only four years? That's almost unheard of for bands that have been going at it for three decades strong. Given the general quality level of their latest, though, I feel that Clutch have most certainly earned themselves more of a break. Not that they'd want to take one, of course. Sunrise on Slaughter Beach is a very short album, with just nine songs totaling about 33 minutes in length, but within that brief window of time, it proves itself to be an ever-engaging riff monster with no dead weight to speak of. The album kicks off with two of its pre-release singles, Red Alert and Slaughter Beach. These two songs are about as quintessential clutch as they come, particularly that semi-title track, and make for a solid one-two punch to jumpstart the album. But things get more interesting from here. The third track, Mountain of Bone, is a grand and majestic ode to Dungeons and Dragons, bolstered by some killer work from the rhythm section. Bassist Dan Maines lays down a thick, juicy groove that calls to mind Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song, and drummer John Paul Gaster matches it with a lively, Jimmy Chamberlain-esque marching drum beat. The next song on the album is Nosferatu Madre, a swampy and stony little number that somewhat reminds me of Quicksand, who happened to be wrapping up a tour with Clutch in Chicago right as I speak. The album's centerpiece, the five-plus-minute Mercy Brown, is one of its most striking songs. It may be the slowest song on the album, but is decidedly not a ballad, more or less straddling the line between semi-ballad and mid-tempo rocker. It is a densely layered tapestry that features, among other things, some melancholy guitar riffing, wailing female backing vocals, and even some atmospheric theremin. From what I've gathered, those latter two things are both firsts for Clutch, and the theremin actually weaves its way into a couple other tracks later in the album. Track number six is the other pre-release single, We Strive for Excellence, which is probably the most kinetic song on the album, and interestingly, its main riff sort of sounds like an inverted and sped-up version of the Nosferatu Madre riff. This song is followed by Skeletons on Mars, another standout track showcasing even more stellar work from the rhythm section. The second half of this four-minute rocker segs into an epic jam that includes, guess what, a little theremin solo. The penultimate track on Sunrise on Slaughter Beach, Three Golden Horns, is one of its more straightforward songs, but it still manages to make its mark thanks in no small part to its infectious refrain of jazz music corrupts the youth. And finally, Jackhammer Our Names closes out the album in an intriguingly minimalistic manner, reminding me heavily of Rowing, the closing track from Soundgarden's 2012 album King Animal. This one is mainly driven by a deliberative and ominous drum beat from Gaster and frontman Neil Fallon's dirge-like singing, with sparse input from the stringed instruments and another star turn from Clutch's new best friend, the theremin. Really, every track on here brings something of its own to the table. Ultimately, Sunrise on Slaughter Beach may not necessarily be a mold-breaking Clutch album, but it's honestly one of the best Clutch albums I've ever heard. 
The band clearly took their time to fine-tune each song and optimize the album's limited runtime, and the whole thing very assuredly comes off as the work of skilled veterans. This is one of the finer examples of the less is more approach that I've encountered in recent memory. Alright, next up is that aforementioned D&D anthem, Mountain of Bone. Enjoy!
Yo, what's up? This is Afro Man. Hey, this is Bass Nectar. We're the Dodging Mountain Man. The Hood Internet. Hey, this is Michael Franti. This is Dude F.O. Infected Mushroom. And we are from the band. Up. You're listening to KBGA, Missoula.
feel good. I'm gonna make myself feel good. I'm gonna make myself, I'm gonna make myself, I'm gonna make myself feel good. I'm gonna make myself feel good. I'm gonna make myself feel good. I'm gonna make myself, I'm gonna make myself, I'm gonna make myself feel good. And it's time for a happy day. their 1997 album, So Long and Thanks for All the Shoes. Back in early 2021, NoFX released their acclaimed 14th studio LP, Single Album, so named because it started development as a double album and was eventually pared down to one disc. 
However, even after single album was in the books, frontman Fat Mike expressed interest in finishing the songs that were left off the album and releasing them sometime as a delayed disc two. Well folks, that time has evidently come. NoFX recently announced a new LP titled Double Album and scheduled for release on December 2nd. This album is not itself a double album, but rather completes the double album that was effectively started with its 2021 counterpart. As Fat Mike further elaborates, I really like single album a lot, but the songs on double album aren't quite up to scratch. All these songs were recorded at the same time, except this one was finished two years later. I think it's a very enjoyable album, and maybe our funniest. I think it is what a lot of our fans will want to hear, and is a great side three and four for a double album. I accomplished my goal of making a solid double album, but it just took a lot longer than I expected. The lead single from Double Album is Darby Crashing Your Party, Darby Crash being the late frontman of iconic punk band The Germs. It's a particularly bass-driven song with Fat Mike's cheeky sense of wordplay on full display. I'm curious to hear the rest of what Double Album has to offer, and I'm sure it'll be as similarly interesting to listen to as Single Album, even though I realize it's completely comprised of material that was deemed not good enough for the first outing. I'll be sure to review and play from it later this year on Sounds Like Teen Spirit, most likely during my 2022 Album of the Year show. In related news, the album may end up being the last one we ever get from NoFX. About a month before the album's announcement, Fat Mike seemingly confirmed that the band will be disbanding next year in his responses to some fan comments on an Instagram post. He responded to a query from a Canadian fan with, Actually, we love Canada, it's just that next year will be our last year. We will be announcing our final shows soon. It's been an amazing run. Although the nature of NoFX's supposed 2023 farewell tour remains largely unknown, Fat Mike did suggest in another Instagram comment response that the band's last show would take place in LA because that's where it all began. At this time, these casual remarks made on Instagram over a month ago, regardless how direct of a source they may be coming from, represent the sole indication of an impending farewell tour from NoFX. The band still have yet to clarify or follow up on them even in the wake of the new album's unveiling, and until they do, or better yet, until we receive the first official announcement of farewell dates, those comments can probably just be written off as Fat Mike blowing smoke. However, if they do represent an accurate harbinger of what's to come, then I would be crushed if the band's final run doesn't include a stop at our beloved Kettlehouse Amphitheater next summer. If I'm going to have to start a petition to bring NoFX to the venue during his 2023 concert season, then so be it, I guess. Anyway, before NoFX, I played Happy Day by Uncanny Alliance off their 1994 album The Groove Won't Bite, Slow Ride by Sublime, off their 1997 compilation, Secondhand Smoke. The Only One I Know by The Charlatans, off their 1990 album, Some Friendly. And Pretty Done by Allison Chains, off their 2013 album, The Devil Put Dinosaurs Here. You're still listening to Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. To like this show on Facebook, go to facebook.com slts2, and to hear this and other episodes of the program after the broadcast, go to kbga.org teen-spirit. Alright, next I'm going to review and play a song from the new Weezer EP, Seasons, Autumn. 
A new season is now upon us in the year of our Lord 2022, which means it's also time for another installment of Weezer's ongoing Seasons project. In case you've missed out on all my prior coverage, Seasons, stylized as S-Z-N-Z in all caps, refers to a series of four 2022 EPs from Weezer, with a new EP being released on the first official day of each season this year. Spring and summer EPs were issued in March and June, respectively, and a winter EP is due out in late December, but right now I'm just here to unpack the latest EP, the one titled Seasons Autumn. Just like its spring and summer predecessors, Autumn consists of seven songs between 20 to 25 minutes in total length, and this one's actually the longest yet at just over 24 minutes. It's also the first of the seasonal EPs not to have a pre-release single, though Weezer did go on Jimmy Kimmel and play the song What Happens After You the day before the EP's release. The central conceit behind the season's EPs is that each one is meant to lyrically and sonically evoke the feel of its respective season, and to that end, the spring EP had something of a folk rock vibe, whereas the summer EP went in more of a power pop infused direction. The fall EP has previously been billed as the Dance Rock EP and was intended to take after such post-90s dance rock acts as Fall Out Boy, The Strokes, and Friends Ferdinand, but honestly, the only song on the EP that actually seems to fit that mold is aforementioned would-be single What Happens After You. The rest of the EP's tracks sound more or less like quintessential Weezer, or at least quintessential to the band's modern era for what that's worth, and in fact some of those songs could have easily been used on one of the prior EPs instead. For instance, the light and somewhat folksy Should She Stay or Should She Go and the orchestral string-dominated Taste the Pain both sound like prime candidates for the spring EP, and the latest in a long line of About a Girl Weezer songs, Francesca, as well as closing track Run, Rave, and Run, which at over five minutes is handily the longest track to come out of the season's project thus far, would have felt right at home on season's summer. Furthermore, the fall EP is also the least specific to its season from a lyrical content standpoint. The spring EP featured songs tackling such springtime-associated concepts as Shakespeare in the Park, the Garden of Eden, and pagan rituals deep in the woods, and the summer EP utilized summertime as more of a general backdrop for its songs, but the fall EP hardly incorporates any lyrical references to its designated season whatsoever. Instead, the songs here largely deal with feelings of depression, anxiety, and lovesickness, and if those are the kinds of things that Rivers Cuomo associates with fall, then I guess that's his prerogative, but it really only contributes to the relatively unfocused nature of this EP. Ultimately, I think Seasons Autumn is my least favorite entry in the Seasons project thus far, and would characterize it as merely adequate, but considering that Weezer have sometimes been notably less than that in recent years, adequate still feels pretty agreeable to me. Having long ago accepted that there's never going to be another Pinkerton, I'm really just glad to hear Weezer rocking out again, as opposed to dabbling in a borderline grating, semi-auto-tuned modern pop sound as heard on Pacific Daydream and the Black Album. In a nutshell, if you were on board with the first two seasonal EPs, then you'll probably be content with this one as well. Alright, this next track is undoubtedly my favorite from the EP. It's got an enticing Van Weezer-esque guitar riff and an interesting dynamic shift between its verses and choruses. This song is called Get Off on the Pain. Enjoy! The people down the street are packing up 
As if they found a neighbor doing witchcraft There isn't anybody I could trust So I'm alone dancing to a click track What's wrong with me?
This is Silver Sprocket, host of Something Else, live every Wednesday from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on KBGA Missoula 89.9 FM. I feature avant-garde, electroacoustic, free jazz, and more creative music every week. You'll get to hear advanced new releases straight from the artists and record labels before anybody else and extensive interviews with the artists themselves. How about you give something else a try? Live every Wednesday from 8 to 10 p.m. on KBGA Missoula, 89.9 FM, and streaming at kbga.org. Yeah, 
or else to be funky. I gotta wash your eyes if you must. You gotta wash your hair if you must. You gotta wash your teeth if you must, or else to be funky. Listen, we don't need any fancy, super-duper promo. We don't need any of that. See, here with KVGA, we're just a student-run college radio station, and we play music. It's pretty simple. That's it. 
by voices with I Am a Scientist off their 1994 album B-1000. Guided by Voices have been putting out three albums per year since 2019, and this year is no exception. Previously, the band issued the album Crystal Nuns Cathedral in March, followed by Tremblers and Goggles by Rank in July, and their third album of 2022, titled Scalping the Guru, is due out later this month on October 28th. This next one is not an actual new album per se, but rather a compilation of songs from four obscure EPs released between 1993 and 94. Static Airplane Jive, Get Out of My Stations, Fast Japanese Spin Cycle, and Clown Prince of the Menthol Trailer. Guided by Voices frontman Robert Polyard hand-selected 20 of the 28 songs contained between the four EPs and sequenced them to play like a cohesive album, but other than that, he has seemingly left the original recordings alone. So if you were to listen to Scalping the Guru's lead single, Big School, originally from the Static Airplane Jive EP, then you'd be treated to some early 90s lo-fi production values and a much more youthful Polyard at the helm, as opposed to something that sounds fairly recent. In other GBV news, the band have already started to reveal their first couple releases for 2023. Their next album, scheduled after Scalping the Guru, is titled La La Land and set for release on January 20th. No, they didn't adapt the soundtrack from the 2016 musical. Rather, La La Land has been described by Paul Yurt as somewhat of a companion piece to Tremblers and Goggles by Rank, and continues to explore a path of diversity in styles and in longer, more adventurous song structures. 
The album's lead single is Instinct Dwelling, and despite being under three minutes long, it does sound kind of like the intro to a progier, more experimental sort of GBV album. Additionally, the band have confirmed the title of that album's follow-up album to be Welsh Pool Frillies. While the album currently has no set release date, I'd be quite surprised if it ends up coming out much later than June. At any rate, the fact that Guided by Voices are already unveiling their 2023 slate must mean that Scalping the Guru will be it for 2022, so you can expect to hear my 2022 GBV Year in Review during the next show I air after Halloween. Before GBV, I played Give the Mule What He Wants by Queens of the Stone Age off their 1998 self-titled. If You Must by Del the Funky Homo Sapien off his 2000 album Both Sides of the Brain, and Grindhouse A Go-Go by White Zombie off their 1992 album La Sexorcisto, Devil Music Volume 1. You're still continuing to listen to Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. To like this show on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash slts2 and hear this and other episodes of the program after the broadcast, go to kbga.org slash teen-spirit. Alright, next I'm going to review and play a song from the new Bush album, The Art of Survival. Bush have now officially released five albums in their post-reunion phase, which is one more than they had during their initial run from 1992 to 2002, and with each new one, it's become increasingly apparent that the Bush of today is a completely different beast from the Bush people knew and loved in the 90s. For starters, frontman Gavin Rossdale is now the only original member remaining after drummer Robin Goodridge, the only other original member to participate in the reunion, left in 2019. Furthermore, the band have moved, and continue to move, far away from the decidedly grungy sound of their earlier offerings, barring the odd exception here and there, like Nurse off of 2017's Black and White Rainbows. Of course, Bush distancing themselves from grunge is hardly a new development, as the band had already begun shifting towards post-grunge by the release of their third album, 1999's The Science of Things. From there, however, they continued to forge ahead in that direction with 2001's Golden State, and after a lengthy hiatus, they picked up right where they left off with their first few post-reunion albums. In fact, those albums are perhaps best characterized as melodic British alt-rock with modern post-grunge production values. Towards the end of the 2010s, Rossdale was inspired to make Bush heavier after routinely getting booked to play more metal-oriented music festivals, but in this instance, heavier does not mean getting back in touch with the band's grungy roots. Instead, Rossdale linked up with hard rock film composer Tyler Bates, best known for his work with directors like Zack Snyder, Rob Zombie, James Gunn, and Chad Stahelski, and for serving as Marilyn Manson's guitarist and producer on a couple of albums. Bates co-produced Bush's 2020 album The Kingdom with Rossdale, as well as co-wrote about half its songs, and he exerts enough influence over the band's sound to warrant the designation of secret fifth member. The end result of his and Rossdale's collaborative efforts is indeed a heavier Bush, but definitely not the same Bush that recorded 16 Stone and Razorblade Suitcase. Bates and Rossdale continued their partnership, albeit with Bates having considerably fewer songwriting credits, on the next Bush album and subject of this review, 2022's The Art of Survival. 
And despite Bates being less directly involved in its content, the album very much continues in the same direction established by its predecessor. And now that said direction is a couple of albums deep, I think I can finally pinpoint exactly what it is. It seems Bush is trying to cross over into industrial territory. There were certainly traces of industrial music throughout the kingdom, particularly concentrated around its first half, but the art of survival commits even more to the movement, with at least a few songs that could be readily classified as such. These include opener Heavy is the Ocean, which heaves and crashes along on a veritable tidal wave of guitars and bass, lead single More Than Machines, which distills that same stringed instrument density into its own bulky guitar riff, and Identity, which may well be Bush's heaviest song yet and is almost a full-on metal joint. There are also a couple tracks that go for more of an electro-industrial vibe, a la Nine Inch Nails or last year's new garbage album No Gods No Masters. The songs May Your Love Be Pure and 1,000 Years sound like they could have been right at home on my 2021 Album of the Year pick and are completely unprecedented and refreshing coming from Bush. I'm kinda now hoping the band probes the industrial angle even further from here and just does a straight-up industrial album for their next release. As it currently stands, it's still a work in progress. A lot of these heavier Bush songs just haven't been very musically compelling, and Rossdale's voice mixing sounds a bit rough and discordant in places, but I'm thinking a greater commitment to the industrial genre could be the reinvention Bush have been seeking. Ultimately, The Art of Survival is a bit better than The Kingdom, but not quite the best post-reunion Bush album. I actually think my favorite might still be the first one they put out, 2011's The Sea of Memories. Bush may never again be the grunge powerhouse they once were, but right now there's potential for them to become something arguably just as good. Or dare I say even better? Nah, just as good, just as good. Alright, next I'm going to do one of my favorites off The Art of Survival, the aforementioned near-metal track, Identity. Enjoy!
And remember who you're dealing with. KBGA Missoula, the cabbage. Yeah. 
D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, B, G, A.
Smashing Pumpkins with Age of Innocence off their 2000 album Machina, The Machines of God. A couple years ago, I reported that the Smashing Pumpkins were working on a 33-song rock opera to conclude an album trilogy that began with 1995's Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness and continued with 2000's Machina. Although the band reportedly had the whole album fully conceptualized by the end of 2020, we hadn't heard so much as a whisper of its continued progress in the time since. Until last month, that is, when the Pumpkins re-emerged from the shadows with the official announcement of Autumn, a rock opera in three acts. Stylized as A-T-U-M in all caps, Autumn will consist of 33 songs, just as promised in 2020, spread between its three discs, which are being doled out one at a time over the next several months. Autumn Act 1 is scheduled for release later this year on November 15th, Act 2 will arrive on January 31st, 2023, and Act 3 will follow a few months later on April 21st. Furthermore, a box set containing the full album plus 10 bonus tracks will be released alongside Act 3. This upcoming trilogy of albums to cap off a trilogy marks the third release from The Pumpkins since the return of original members James Eha and Jimmy Chamberlain in 2018. The lead single from the albums is Beguiled, a song that combines so many different styles of Pumpkins music from over the years that it's a wonder it works so damn well. It's undoubtedly among the most 90s evoking songs the band has put out since their 2018 semi-reunion, and yet there are also detectable hints of the Machina album, the previous synth and electropopulating album 2020's Seer, and even that one period of the Pumpkins revival during which Billy Corgan was the only remaining original member, in other words, the Tear Garden by Kaleidoscope years. All of these different styles and elements fuse together quite admirably on Beguiled, and I definitely think it's one of the strongest songs to come out of the current lineup thus far. Honestly, I didn't think the last two Pumpkins albums quite lived up to the potential of an Eha and Chamberlain reunion, but this new single tells me it's finally about to start paying dividends with these impending few albums. Additionally, the Pumpkins have been playing the songs Empires, Neophyte, and Harmageddon from the albums at some of their recent live shows, and videos of the songs are readily available on YouTube if you're unwilling to wait for the studio recordings. Neophyte is kind of a synth-drenched ballad that reminds me of 2012's Oceania album, while the other two traffic in the same heavy, melodic, buzzing guitar sound that largely colored the first few albums, much like Beguiled to an extent. Interestingly, Empires, Neophyte, and Beguiled are all part of the track list for Act 2, and Harmageddon is on Act 3, so for all we've gotten to hear of the Autumn Trilogy at this point, we still haven't heard so much as a note of the disc that's due out roughly a month from now. I'll be sure to review and play from that disc later this year on Sounds Like Teen Spirit, and I'll likely afford the same treatment to each of the other two as well, with my review of the third being more comprehensive. Anyway, before the Pumpkins, I played Under 21 by Save Ferris off their 1997 album It Means Everything, Dead Again by Buck Cherry off their 1999 self-titled debut, Life Ain't So Dishy by Blind Melon off their 1996 compilation Nico, and Tightwad Hill by Green Day off their 1995 album Insomniac. And that about wraps up a highly caustic edition of Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. I've been your host, Ian. 
To reiterate what I've been promising amid episodes past, I am very much doing a Halloween show for 2022, and it's going to be a completely different kind of Halloween show this time around. In fact, it's going to be entirely unprecedented for this whole program altogether. So make sure you remember to tune in to KBGA at this time two Sundays from now, October 30th, because I'm sure you would just die if you found out what you missed. In the meantime, I'm closing out this episode by reviewing and playing a song from the new Slipknot album, The End So Far. Slipknot had effectively leveled up with the 2019 release of We Are Not Your Kind. That album saw the band burst clean through the creative ceiling they had been gradually and inevitably hurtling towards at that point by expanding their sonic palette. The song arrangements got more elaborate, and the music grew more diverse and experimental, resulting in a uniquely compelling and weighty listening experience. Though Slipknot had really always been a quote-unquote album band, We Are Not Your Kind had the effect of making that more apparent than ever. I enjoyed the album thoroughly enough to name it my album of the year for 2019, so it should go without saying that I was eagerly anticipating its 2022 successor, The End So Far. And honestly, seeing the relatively mixed reactions to the new album upon its release made me all the more excited to sink my own teeth into it. Sure, the previous album had its fair share of detractors, but fan reactions to the end so far ran all across the board, with seemingly at least as many people calling it their least favorite Slipknot album as those declaring it their favorite. Even the band itself is somewhat divided over the album, with frontman Corey Taylor exhibiting pride over this particular outing, whereas guitarist Jim Root has expressed dissatisfaction with both the creative process and final product, claiming percussionist-slash-conceptualist Sean Crahan echoes those sentiments. With all that in mind, coupled with my impressions from the first few singles, I went into the album figuring it would at the very least be an interesting listen, if not entirely up to par with its immediate predecessor, and it turns out I was more or less dead on in that assessment. Indeed, the end so far may not quite be on the same level as We Are Not Your Kind, but it proves itself to be a similarly enthralling experience and overall worthy follow-up nonetheless. Right off the bat, the album flaunts its divisive nature with opening track Adderall, which is a far cry from your typical Slipknot album opener. The song is an ethereal ballad of the Pink Floydian persuasion, and you'd think given its near six-minute runtime and position at the start of the album that it would eventually erupt into some sort of unnerving cacophony, but that never happens. It was certainly gutsy of Slipknot to lead off the new album with that track, and that decision seems to bear the brunt of fan bellyaching over the album, but as an opener, I ultimately think it works in its own odd way, and it helps that the song sounds refreshingly different from anything Slipknot have put out before. Although the band is certainly no stranger to ballads, Adderall has next to nothing in common with any prior Slipknot ballad, nor does it sound like Corey Taylor's other main band, Stone Sour. In the end, however, the song turns out to be something of a misdirect, because even though The End So Far largely continues in the direction established by its acclaimed predecessor, it is actually a safer and more straightforward Slipknot album overall. Contrary to the concerns no doubt held by some maggots, The End So Far offers no shortage of the brutal and aggressive new metal that has become Slipknot's calling card, with tracks such as The Dying Song, The Chapel Town Rag, Hive Mind, Warranty, and Hell, stylized as H377, more than delivering the aggro Slipknot goods. 
In fact, there are multiple moments on the album that feel unmistakably reminiscent of Slipknot's first couple albums, 1999's Self-Titled and 2001's Iowa. Where the album sets itself apart from previous Slipknot efforts, however, is in its unprecedented volume of clean singing from Corey Taylor. On top of that aforementioned opening track, Taylor really gets to flex his vocal versatility on songs like Medicine for the Dead, Heirloom, and Closing Track Finale, all of which employ predominantly clean vocals but sound no less like top-tier Slipknot bangers regardless. It's really no wonder Taylor holds this album in such high regard, and all things considered, I'm not sure I understand why it has so divided fans more than usual. I guess the more that Slipknot keep raising the bar for themselves, the harder it gets for them to satisfy everyone. Ultimately, the end so far almost feels like a delayed second disc to 2019's We Are Not Your Kind, and like most second discs of double albums, it's not as strong as the first, but it still manages to be a wonderfully complimentary listening experience all the same. Alright, this next track is definitely among my favorites from the end so far, and I would actually call it the album's equivalent to Dead Memories or The Devil and I. This is the aforementioned Medicine for the Dead. Bye-bye now. Yeah. 